The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 263. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. If you don't want to find all those social media accounts on your own, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on if you're watching the podcast. You can also buy your book plates there if you've got one of my books. And you want my autograph, just purchase one of those book plates. I'll send it out to you, and you got my autograph on your book. The best way, though, to support the show is by going to mclanahanacademy.com. mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll, and those that do enroll do get a free course. 10 Myths of American History. Plus, you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. And that is a huge hint. This is the last podcast before this forthcoming course releases. So once it releases, those deals are gone. But those who are McClanahan Academy subscribers right now are getting that great deal. So you're going to want to get that. It's an awesome course, um, this new course I have coming out. So a lot of great ways. I've got uh, eight courses there now, uh, including the one that's going to be released. And so it's a great way to support the show. You get something out of it. You get a great course. You also get to support the show and uh, all these episodes that I've done for free, free of charge, right? You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll see that shop button. Click on that and get all your Brian McClanahan show gear, your, my logo on uh, things like T-shirts, uh, stickers, skins for your electronic devices. I also have another one there. It's Think Locally, Act Locally. Now, it's a different different design, but it's not my logo, but it's got that phrase on there. If you're just interested in that, which, of course, is the uh, slogan of this particular podcast, you can get that as well. So a lot of great ways to support the show. Always remember that um, you, uh, when you, if you do like the show, rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. Share it around on social media. That way we can help grow the base, and get more people thinking locally and acting locally. Okay, let's talk about the subject of the day, and it's a book review. We're going to do something. I haven't done a book review in a while. And there's a new book out by Jarrett Stepman entitled The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past. So here it is, showing it in the camera. This is it from from Regnery. I think it's a Regnery history, not just a Regnery book. Let me check it out here. Uh, I don't know if it was Regnery. It is a Regnery, just a Regnery book. So not a Regnery history, but um, it's an interesting... uh, Look, I I think it's a great topic, right? I mean, anyone that's followed me for any length of time and follows my work over at the Abbeville Institute, which, of course, is also another way to get more of me, I podcast there once a week. So if you want three times a week, which I generally do this show twice a week, I'll be back to that within a week or two. You can get me there as well, but... Anyone that follows me over there knows that I've spent a lot of time talking about this war on history. Monuments, symbols. And um, we focused at that particular website on Confederate monuments. But we also talked about Thomas Jefferson and others. 
And so this particular book is much needed. We do have a climate of historical ignorance in the United States. And part of that is driven by the left, whose goal is to eradicate Western civilization. I mean, the, the attack on symbols is just a surface attack. It's, it's like um, you've got a disease and you have symptoms, right? It's a symptom of the disease, and the disease is the attack on Western civilization. And I think that Mr. Stepman, I think he, he writes at the Daily Signal or somewhere like that. He, he's he's a, 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 a pretty prominent online uh, conservative political figure. Um, young man. He's a young guy. Uh, but I think that he's, and he does say this in here, he's right on. This book is needed because that particular assault is taking place. So what's at stake here is not just some statues or the reputation of some individuals. It's Western civilization itself. Because if you tear down all of these things, and as I said before, look, the goal of the, West, of the left, of the progressive left, is to have history begin in 1975, or maybe after. Because you see, once you can expunge all of these things, well, then you create a climate where you're starting from year zero. I mean, this is, this is what the leftists, the progressives, have always wanted to do, start with a year zero. Now, the, the left is not saying that, they don't say these things anymore, but that's the goal. If you look at the French Revolution, for example, I mean, they started over with a new calendar. If you look at the communist revolution in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, this is exactly what they did. They started with the year zero. Uh, if you look at the North Koreans, they rewrote their entire history. You see, this is the point of all of this stuff. And it's not hyperbole. It's not fear-mongering. This is what the left has done. They ha there are concrete examples that this is what they want to do. And so as you tear down tradition, as you tear down traditional heroes, you create a climate where you have to start with something else. And you have to start with new myths. Because all, all these things are basically tied into myths and what myths are acceptable and what myths are not acceptable. Look, a myth is not necessarily false history. It's stories. It's traditions. Uh, so the people that call, for example, this use as a pejorative, the myth of the lost cause, it's a story. It's a southern story of tradition. There's another myth that corresponds with that. It's the myth of the righteous cause, which, unfortunately, Stepman seems to subscribe to. But there's that as well. It's a story of tradition. And really what we've had in America are these two competing myths. The problem with the myth of the righteous cause is that it leads into some of the stuff that we're seeing that's under attack. And unfortunately, Stepman doesn't hit hard enough. I mean, I think that there are parts of this book that are really good, but he doesn't hit hard enough. Now, I will say this. This book is red meat for conservatives. I mean, there's stuff in here that, uh, I mean, it's it's borderplate for uh, the conservative movement. And uh, it, it fits nicely into that. I, I hope that it sells thousands and thousands and thousands of copies because there are some good things that are in the book and I think it's a worthwhile topic. He just needed to hit a little a couple of areas a little harder and and do it in a way that would not open the door to the left. You see what he's done is he's cracked the door and you can't give them an inch because they will take I mean they'll just bust the door open and take the entire room, right? And this is what this is this is how they've done things. So you can he concedes too much at times. And I think what you can say about Stepman, he's a Straussian nationalist. I mean, this is, and unfortunately, that's, 
as I've said on this podcast before and in others, the Straussian nationalists are the real cancer in conservatism because they create an entirely distorted view of American conservatism. What it, what it is not and what it should not be, and that is problematic. In fact, they are more problematic than the left because they actually agree with the left on some certain core on certain core things. And that creates a problem. And you could I mean someone would say, well, I mean these things are right, so we shouldn't we shouldn't disparage the left for things that they're right about, but the left isn't right about these things. They've never been right about these things, and so we shouldn't concede. We should not give the ground, right? So let's get into this book. Um, as you can see, I've got some post-it notes here on pages that I wanted to talk about, a couple of things that I highlighted in the book that I'll build off of and, and say things about. But we'll start with the introduction. And he says some, some good things in the introduction. Again, like I said, the premise of the book is fantastic. And uh, I think worthwhile, a worthwhile addition to the literature that's out there on this destruction of Western civilization, because he actually does say that. He says, those who want to erase our history will not stop with century-old statues. This is entirely true. They want to expunge not only Confederates or Christopher Columbus, but the essence of American civilization. It's not just American civilization, though. It's Western civilization. This is a process that's ongoing, not just here in the United States, but also in other parts of the world. Look, there are, there are discussions in other parts of the world and uh, to get rid of vestiges of Western civilization. It's what the French revolutionaries wanted to do in France. I mean, when they're tearing down the church and statues, they're decapitating statues, right? So the point was that they're not just trying to get rid of the old regime. They're trying to get rid of all tradition because they saw tradition as oppressive. The modern leftists are simply the intellectual descendants of these French revolutionaries, there's no question about it. You can even look at every major conflict in the, in the 19th and 20th century and now into the 21st century as a byproduct of the French Revolution. The culture war that we're seeing today, which, of course, Pat Buchanan was very famously articulated in 1992, is simply a byproduct of the culture war that began in 1792, 200 years earlier. We have been undergoing a constant cultural war since that particular period of time. And there have been those who have tried to arrest that. One of the groups that he concedes too much, of course, are Southerners. I mean, he concedes too much in the attacks on the South. What he doesn't realize is that the South, and maybe he does, but he just didn't say it in the book, the South really is the, the last defense of Western civilization. The Southern tradition is the last defense of Western civilization. I mean, it uh, when you look at what that Southern tradition is, and I know people, oh, that's uh, racism, slavery. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that at all. But the society in which it had, where tradition was the most important thing that you had. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't other places in America that had this type of respect for tradition. Um in every every region, I mean, look, even New England has its own respect for tradition in its own ways. And he gets into one of those in the chapter, in, the, in one of the chapters in the book. Um, but it's also New England that was responsible for much of the destruction of this very important bulwark against radicalism, and that is the South. 
he says this, Our history, culture, and institutions have been under assault for generations, and the American elite have failed to defend them. In fact, the elite, the masters of Hollywood, the mainstream media, and our education system are leading the charge. The number of Americans who still resist speaks to the remarkable appeal of what the United States stands for. But the old values won't last if we stand by as the symbols that represent the best of ourselves are demolished and the great, though imperfect, men and women of our history are systematically erased from our national memory. This is true. Our civilization is at stake. If we recover our history and the traits that have allowed us to succeed so spectacularly in the past, we will rise to the challenges of the 21st century as we have in centuries before. If we fail and the country accepts the narrative that America was rotten to the core from the beginning, we will be lost even if we overcome our external foes and rivals. That's also true. I mean, like I said, there are parts of this I'm saying, yeah, that's great. I mean, great stuff right there. He's, he's 100% right on. Um, he says, as the great historian Arnold Tynebee once said, civilizations die by suicide, not murder. This is the profoundest challenge we face, the, on, the one that will ultimately decide if we are to remain an exceptional nation or not. We wish to honor previous generations and do justice to ourselves and our posterity. We must once again try to understand and defend the world-shaking ideas, actions, and men who made America great. Okay. So his first chapter, I mean, look, this is why I mean, history is not to be used as a weapon, but there are things that you have, again, this myth. So you have a memory. And look, memory is just history. Uh, I know there's this whole field of study now and historians, well, I'm, I'm interested in memory studies and the way people remember. So you're interested in history. Because that's really all history is. It's how we remember the past. It is, as John Lukash said, who just died this year, one of the great historians of the 20th century, the remembered past. History is the remembered past. So he begins his first chapter with Christopher Columbus. And look, uh, there aren't many figures that are more vilified in America now than Christopher Columbus. Though it's amazing because Columbus, as he points out, if you look at what Columbus said about the tribes that he ran into, particularly the first group, he called them very peaceful. He tried to have uh, tried to restrain his men in engaging and doing anything that would harm these people. Um, Columbus was not a homicidal or genocidal maniac. The things that and he accurately points out here, the things that happened to the to the American Indian tribes, uh, disease. This was not Columbus's fault. There are people that were much more brutal in their treatment of uh, the American Indians and Christopher Columbus. And yet, uh, if we want to look at brutality, these people aren't attacked. For example, there is a statue, I believe, of um, Juan Ponce de Leon in Florida. Now, Juan Ponce de Leon is very important for Florida. He named the state. <clears throat> So I can understand what there should be a statue of Juan Ponce de Leon. But if you're looking at someone who was brutal, Juan Ponce de Leon was a slave trader, a slave merchant, a man who openly enslaved the native population there in Puerto Rico, for example. And so wiped him out, essentially. Not Again, not on purpose, but through disease. So if you're looking for someone who is 
much more responsible for these type of things. And Juan Ponce de Leon, but nobody ever goes and pours paint on Juan Ponce de Leon. And I guess you could say, well, there's no holiday to Juan Ponce de Leon. There's one to Columbus. Yes, I understand that. And we should have a holiday to Christopher Columbus. Look, most of us would not be here if not for Christopher Columbus because it opened up the Americas to European settlement. And, I mean, the United States still is dominated by former people that came from, from Europe. So uh, this is, look, not just the United States, but also Canada. Uh, there are large uh, European descendant populations in, in, the, in the South American, Central American region. So, uh, I mean, look, the entire region was opened. So we should celebrate Columbus. And the attacks leveled on Columbus are just uh, simple leftist nonsense. And again, the wider perspective is to attack what's considered to be injustices. American, or I should say colonialism of the 15th and 16th centuries are injustices uh, perpetrated on these populations. But this is something that happened all throughout human history. I mean, look, the tribes themselves, and I think he does point this out in here, and I, and I applaud him for that. The tribes themselves were not saints. But look, there's a reason why we have the term cannibalism, right? Because it comes from some of the tribes that the Spaniards ran across that consumed each other. Um, and, or, you know, the, the, the uh, Caribbean and some of the groups there and, and uh, the fact that uh, they were uh, less than fair to their the people that they conquered. Uh, look, the tribes that the Spaniards came across in, in Mexico and South America, uh, these were brutal people at times. And, the, and warfare in, the, in this particular period of time, as he points out in the chapter on Andrew Jackson, which is another important chapter, this stuff was brutal. He points it out in the chapter on the Puritans. It's not like the Europeans were bringing some form of warfare that these tribes had never seen before. It was commonplace, for example, in South America, once you uh, defeated the leader of your other tribe to kill him and then drink from his skull. Now, is that not brutal? Uh, human sacrifice in, this, in Central America, I mean, is this not brutal? And we saw human sacrifice even in North America. Is this not brutal stuff? Well, of course it is. But that's the, the myth of the, uh, the peaceful... Uh, communistic American Indian has persisted because of leftists who think that the Europeans were much worse. Now, there's a couple of things. In the next chapter, it's the war on, on uh, Thanksgiving. And um, unfortunately, <laughs> th this chapter has a couple of problems with it. And one of them, and I'm just going to read it to you. He says, From its creation, America has been an idealistic nation, a country set apart, a city on a hill, and on, an on, that, on the elevation of that pedestal, an object of loathing to some. It has always been a Christian country, despite con contentions to the contrary. So, this is kind of David Barton nonsense. See, this, this book in some ways is a hybrid of Straussian nationalism and Barton nonsense. And, and uh, so he's, he's digested too much David Barton. Now, I don't know, I didn't look in his notes to see if he used David Barton for any of this. Hopefully he didn't. But uh, the fact is, America was not a nation of ideals. It's not a proposition nation. This is Jaffaite Straussian nonsense. This is the proposition nation belief. It's not that. 
you had it within the English who settled in the Americas. You had four distinct cultures. One of them was the Puritan culture. And he says uh, in another section, I'll get to that, that the Puritans essentially made American culture. This is simply false. It's 100% false. You're ignoring the other British folkways that were in North America, or English folkways, Albion Seed. You're ignoring all of that. So I don't know if he's ever read David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed. He needs to, because he would have to rewrite this entire chapter. America was not an ideal place, as Jefferson even himself said. And of course, he gets into a chapter on Jefferson. Look, it's just the expression of the American mind, which of course was formulated by English tradition or British tradition. The Magna Carta, the uh, English Bill of Rights. These are things that were important, that were very important, but certainly not ideals. These were things based on tradition and the rights of Englishmen. This ideal of city on a hill, no, no, no. That was one section of the population, and certainly it was not uh, the entire American colonial experience that was built on that. And that's, and as he says, um, however, it is this image of pilgrims above all others that has etched into our national consciousness. And he's talking about, of course, Thanksgiving. Um, he says on uh, two pages over, he said, the zealous Protestants who settled New England may not have had our modern notions of religion, science, and liberty for good or ill, but we should be thankful that they helped create what would become the dominant culture in the future United States. No, we shouldn't. Look, Puritanism is the major problem with American politics. It is the basis of progressivism, right? We should not be thankful for the Puritans. Not in that way. At all. I know there are people that will bristle at this. Why are you bashing the Puritans? Oh, you, I mean, the Puritans aren't the problem. It's the people that have distorted the Puritans. Uh, that, that kind of Puritan, Puritanical uh, fervor has, has infected both sides. I mean, even, look, Ronald Reagan got up and said, what we had is a city upon a hill, a shining example for all the world to emulate, right? Um, but it was not that. I mean, look, Jefferson called it the empire of liberty. That wasn't puritanical. That wasn't, in any way, that wasn't puritanical. Um, He wanted America to be an example, but not so that you would force others to be like you. And that, essentially, the Puritans had that idea. It's imperialistic. The Puritan worldview is imperialistic. And they did uh, try to foist their own opinions on the rest. And he, he ignores this in England. Okay, He ignores the fact, and he's, he's very complimentary of the, of the Puritans in England. They were being persecuted. These guys, these poor people were being persecuted. Uh, does he forget the fact that the Puritans lopped off the head of the king and then created a, the, the uh, protectorate with the rump parliament, <laughs> which some would say was a glorious time right in England, Others would say, my gosh, you couldn't do anything. There's a reason why after Oliver Cromwell was already, had already been dead for a couple of years, after his son was deposed and the king brought back in the Restoration, that they dug up his body, mauled it, and hung it because the English people hated these people. A large faction of them did. Now, you also had in North America, at the time the Puritans were here in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, who hated the Puritans too. They were the Virginians. 
right? So that culture, that Virginia culture, is what produced Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and George Mason and James Madison, James Monroe. It's what produced all of it. It's really what produced Andrew Jackson, even though Jackson's from the Carolinas. But in, uh, Jackson's a Celt. But there were, of course, strains of that also in the frontier region. I mean, look, Jackson's part of that other uh, British folkway, the Celtic folkways. But so you had all of that, too. I mean, I think that this, these are mistakes to say these things. And look, the fact is, even though Americans were predominantly Christian, we didn't have a Christian nation. Uh, we had a secular federal republic that allowed for the states to have these differences of religion. Massachusetts had a state religion even when the First Amendment was ratified, right? So, so did Connecticut. I mean, we had these things because we understood that diversity could be maintained within a federal republic which is another part that, unfortunately, he says, um, when, he, when he champions Andrew Jackson, he gets some things wrong. So because of time, i got to quickly go through a couple of other things here. Um, he gets into, he says, what is this great inheritance? It was the Puritan ethos, the values of hardy folk who braved incredible hardships so that future generations could enjoy a new and better world than the one their ancestors lived in. When we think of American exceptionalism, a concept more fully fleshed out by Tocqueville, in the 19th century, are thinking in part of the ideals of the Puritan forebearers from two centuries before. No, no, no. That's entirely incorrect. Now, um, there's a he says something about now the war on the founding. He gets into a chapter on Thomas Jefferson, and again, this is good. I don't think he's he defends Jefferson quite enough, particularly with the Sally Hemings issue. He has one little section on that, and he, he kind of concedes something there. Uh, I don't think you need to. Uh, look, there's no conclusive evidence Jefferson fathered any children with Thomas, with uh, with Sally Hemings, Thomas Jefferson Hemings. There is a member of the Jefferson line that perhaps fathered one child with Sally Hemings, but it's not conclusively Thomas Jefferson, and he does mention that in the book. Okay, but he does concede that maybe, and I've even said that perhaps, you know, it's possible, but not not probable, and I think we need to uh, be careful about that. Now, he has a chapter on, on uh, Andrew Jackson. And he says uh, this about, he, he gets into nullification, and again, he concedes too much here. Look, he says, this was a stunningly important moment in American history. Jackson perceived accurately that the nullification crisis was precipitated not just for the sake of tariffs, but by Southern radicals who were concocting arguments to sever the nation if the institution of slavery came under attack. To be sure, Jackson, a slaveholding planter, a plantation owner, disliked abolitionist fanatics, but he saw them as less of a threat than the nullifiers. Um... This is, this is the William Freeling position that somehow nullification was just a cover for slavery. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't at all. Uh, you have to go back to Jefferson and Madison. I mean, this is an, he, he doesn't, this is where I think Stepman is, is out of his league here because he doesn't really understand the history of any of this. Um, and so he's defending Trump and Trump saying that, you know, well, the Civil War could have been avoided. Well, it could have. But he also praises Andrew Jackson, saying we're going to hang people for adhering to real federalism and, and trying to defy an unconstitutional law. Right? So it's not just you can't just ignore any laws. As he says, Calhoun and his partisans argued that states could nullify, essentially ignore federal laws. Well, there's a caveat to that. Unconstitutional federal laws, which is what the Tenth Amendment essentially says. So he, he gets that wrong, and I think he's too national. Again, he's, he's a Straussian nationalist. Now... The one that is the most problematic chapter is the chapter entitled The War on Union. So 
if you look at, I did look at his notes for this one. He uses a lot of Jaffa and Gelzo. I mean, this is this is a highly problematic chapter. It could have been so much better. He could have hit so much harder. Now, he does use Dwight Eisenhower in praise of Robert E. Lee. I love that part of this chapter. I mean, that is it's something that we've done over and over again in defense. And look, I wrote a whole piece on Lee for the Abbeville Institute entitled Lee versus Twitter Historians, which a lot of these Twitter historians didn't like because they blocked me after I did it. Uh, because I ripped them apart, shredded them to a point where they probably could never, they should never raise their head and say anything about this again. But uh, I'm sure they will. I can't see what they're writing anymore. But he does say, I mean, so he uh, he does do that. But unfortunately, much of the chapter is actually dedicated to defending Abraham Lincoln. Because, of course, Lincoln has come under attack. Well, how can you def- how can you assault Abraham Lincoln? He is right that the Confederate statues are the first step and then going after these. He should have focused much more of the book on this um, and how these it's just low-hanging fruit. You, if you take that out, then you're going to get the other stuff. Um, and he doesn't do a good enough job defending the entirety of what we're talking about. And I said the Southern tradition um, because he actually attacks it. And he makes a statement that I find, oh, first of all, he said this, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. When? When did Abraham Lincoln free any slaves? I, I, I uh, that's, that's one that I missed. Now, he does defend Robert E. Lee um, as, a, as a quintessential Southern gentleman, and he does that well, um, I think, for the most part. Uh, but he doesn't, he, he says some other things about Confederate statues, and I'll get into that in a minute. He attacks Alexander. He uses the cornerstone speech. Well, the war, and he says this, those who say the Civil War was over slavery are correct. It was. It was over slavery. They're correct. So Lincoln invaded to free the slaves. This supercharged debate was tearing at the national soul and making compromise impossible. For who? I mean, look, Southerners are willing to compromise. They were. They said as much. And if the war was over slavery, why was Lincoln uh, willing to have an amendment to the Constitution would have made abolishing slavery illegal in the southern states? If it was over slavery, it's not. you have to ask the question why slavery was important. It was all about political power. And I've already done two episodes on this, so I'm not going to get into this more. But he says that, again, problematic. Um, He, he, but he, again, he concedes too much in this chapter. He says, yes, there were militant racists who wanted to memorialize prejudice, Jim Crow, and white supremacy. Th- but not through Confederate statues. And he's using the Julian Carr and Silent Sam uh, speech. But he doesn't get into this enough. He doesn't really look at who... Le- Julian Carr said a racist thing during the speech. Okay, He, he said that in a speech at the dedication of Silent Sam. I mean, this is, this is there. Um... But there were plenty of others at the time who erected monuments to pay tribute to the fathers and grandfathers who had died in the war. How about majority? How about there were a few? How about there were no, there's no evidence that anyone erected a Confederate monument to preserve Jim Crow prejudice and white supremacy? These were a given. I mean, that's the thing that people don't get. Nobody had to defend that because that was a given part of society, North and South. Right? This was accepted. So nobody was thinking, oh my gosh, this stuff is under attack. We've got to put up a statue to make sure that these people are subjected uh, to, uh, to white supremacy and that they know we're the boss. That's not what they're doing. Um, he doesn't understand um, Julian Carr. Uh, Julian Carr actually tried to 
and, and again, Abby, uh, Philip Lee did a nice piece on what he called car washing, where he gets into who re the real Julian Carr was. This guy was universally respected north and south, and he actually helped set up schools for free, for uh, uh, African Americans in the south. I mean, so, yeah, he said a very racist thing, but, I mean, there's complexity here that he doesn't get. So I, I wish that he did a little more with that. He also points out that Booker T. Washington said we should have Confederate monuments, and that is good, too. So that he could have done a little better with his chapter, um, but, of course, that's... That might be asking too much. I mean, it is a maybe. I don't know. This this chapter should have been the centerpiece of the book from in my position. But again, I think the book is worthwhile, and you should get it. I mean, there's some interesting stuff in here. Then he does a chapter on TR, which, I mean, okay. And then um, uh, one on essentially Henry Ford, uh, because, you know, Henry Ford is constantly under assault. So in many ways, this is he, he goes from the 16th century to the 20th. And I like that he did that, a broad swath of American history. I think that's a great way to do it. And um, he concludes with something that's pretty accurate. He says, look, if our country cherishes its, cherishes its past and looks to its future, it will produce more Americans who deserve to be celebrated as greats, men and women who can inspire future generations, as, as did Christopher Columbus, William Bradford, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, Robert E. Lee, Teddy Roosevelt, Henry Ford, and Dwight Eisenhower. But if our country foolishly commits to erasing its history, it will have no future worthy of its past. So I agree with that. Um, so the book's good, right? I would say the book's good. One chapter has a little to be desired. He does get some other, he concedes a little too much on some things. And I think, again, that's because of where he's coming from. I don't know if he's really read the other side as much. I mean, if he, has he ever, if he's ever read Mel Bradford, for example, or uh, some of the other people, Richard Weaver in defense of tradition and Weaver's uh, positions on the South. I mean, these are things that are important. He could have woven that into the chapter on the war against Union. Um, and so he defends Lincoln as being this guy that, I mean, yeah, he, there's a reason people are attacking Lincoln. Uh, and look, Malcolm X pointed out that Lincoln was more problematic than anyone in, uh, in American history for race relations. Um, so there, this has been ongoing for some time. Uh, but regardless, uh, you should get the book. Um, it's, um, it's a fun read, very quick read. The problems aside, I think that it's a, it's a worthwhile uh, history. And actually, one of my colleagues, I had it on my desk, and he said, hey, that, that looks interesting. And uh, so it's, the title is grabbing. Uh, you know, it's a, the War on History, it's a good title. It's a, it's a, it's a timely book. And I think one that uh, might start a conversation, as I'm doing here. We can have, I can uh, have, I can quibble with Stepman on some positions, but I would not say that the book is not necessary and that he doesn't do a good job for much of the book in pointing out why these things are necessary to do, why it's necessary to defend these characters in America's past who are so vilified by the modern left and progressives. All right, I will see you next time on The Brian McClanahan. <laughs>